DNS, DHCP, IPAM, and traffic steering delivered to SaaS, supporting your internal and public applications deployed in the cloud, a CDN, or your own facilities, serving your users no matter where they are. That is sponsor NS1 in a nutshell. Find out more about NS1 at ns1.com slash packet pushers. For your free account and some swag, that's ns1.com slash packet pushers. Network admission control, also called network access control, is our topic today. And roughly stated, NAC is about whether or not to allow a wired or wireless thing, a user or device, onto your network. And if you do allow them, what will they be able to access? If you've worked with 802.1x, Cisco ICE, or Rubik ClearPass, Radius, etc., you are in the world of NAC. Our guest today is Arnie Beer. Arnie is a senior consulting engineer and CCIE who emailed us asking to have this NAC conversation, which is a takeaway for you folks listening out there because maybe you, like Arnie, are an independent engineer with something you'd like to discuss on a future heavy networking podcast. That would be amazing. Hit our contact form at packetpushers.net or just email us direct, packetpushers at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you and consider your topic. But back to you, Arnie. Hey, man, thank you for volunteering and welcome to heavy networking. You know, my friend, you know a lot about NAC and you've written, you've essentially written this entire script and we are going to hit a whole bunch of topics about all kinds of NAC things, including Mac authentication, bypass and client certificates and eat methods and more. But, but Arnie, let's start at the beginning. Would you introduce us to your view of NAC? That is why NAC? Because man, I have worked with some of this stuff in the background uh, before. It is a bunch of overhead to deal with. So, so you got to give me some good reasons to deploy NAC. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Ethan. Um, when you said you're entering a world of knack, I, I thought when you'd written that, it was like you're entering a world of pain. And to <laughs> some people, it might feel that way. And because there is a lot of overhead, it's not something you just do on a whim. The network admission control or network access control is usually something that is mandated by the organization, with, whether it be a, a small, medium or large organization, because security is very much uh, a focus, a focal point these days. So we as network engineers, we have a responsibility also to make sure that what is connecting to our network uh, is allowed and is even supposed to be there in the first place. And that is where NAC uh, comes in. So I just wanted to clear one thing that NAC can also mean something like device administration. So we all know TACAX Plus mm. and even RADIUS can be used as a device administration protocol. We're not going to be talking about that today. It's just, just to frame the context, it'll be about wired and wireless clients connecting to the network in a, in a safe way. So yeah, I'd say security is, is, the, is the number one. And then, and then the second one that ties in with security is something called dynamic authorization. So let's assume you have securely connected to the network. How do you react when something goes wrong on an end client? You may want to do that manually, or you may want to do that automatically. And so, either way, so something that, goes wrong. You mean like like malware is detected, something like that? Exactly, malware is detected. The security posture of the endpoint has changed. It used to be a friendly device. Now it's an unfriendly device, whatever that may mean in your context of posture. It may even be be something as simple as somebody has jailbroken their iPhone, or someone has somehow disabled the pin lock on their phone or on their device. So now the device is non-compliant and with change of authorization, we can do something about it. If you didn't have NAC, think about it this way. If you didn't have NAC, 
how would you mitigate those situations? So that is a good one. Um, visibility is another good point, and that is what is connecting to your network? Do we still have Windows XP devices out there? Do we still have Windows 7 or <laughs> all the things out there? Or what is actually connecting to our network? There are other tools that can do that as well, but NAC is well-placed for that. Yeah, visibility at a, at a higher level than it used to be back in the day. It's not just a Mac or an IP address, and we kind of know there's something out there with a with an address, but really understanding what the device is, what kind of a stack it's running, and and uh, having knowledge, therefore, as to what the potential risk is because of what the thing actually is. Yeah, it's, it's not its primary focus. Um, I'm, I'm not saying you should uh, implement an act for visibility, but it's call it a side effect um, of that. And then the other cool thing that I've uh, dealt with in my customer space is also just configuration consistency, especially on switch ports. If you imagine a large chassis switch that has a lot of line cards, 48 ports on a, on a line card, and a large enterprise connecting um, you know, the access layer devices into these chassis, you do a show run on one of those and you just see minutes and minutes of, of scrolling configuration. If you have NAC enabled, you can greatly simplify the configuration, have a consistent port template, for example, and then the whole thing is just simplified. And also it allows you to plug and play uh, ports. So if, for example, you move desks uh, from level 10 to level 15, you have to raise a ticket and some engineer has to change the port on the other uh, desk port, et cetera, et cetera. Plug and, plug and play becomes a lot easier with something like, like NAC. So that's, that's maybe like a, a lower level side of side benefits um, of NAC. Okay, Arnie. So we've got, the, we've got the high level of why NAC, and it feels like there's going to be a lot to putting this solution in place because you implied a lot of things in the why NAC. There's something that is able to scan and understand the, the security posture of endpoints. There's something there that can apply some sort of policy to that uh, endpoint once we've detected what that posture is. We can detect if there's some kind of a change to the endpoint and then change what we're doing there. Um, and there's some kind of console we're looking at with visibility. So, dude, you just described a lot of homework for me to be doing. So, uh, so if I'm going to get into a project like this, how do I even, how do I start this? Do I have to do an assessment? Do I have to, how do I begin tackling the beginning of a NAC rollout? Yeah, so this is the million dollar question. And let's just say at the beginning of most customers' journeys, it'll be, or the catalyst for NAC could have been a vendor presentation about how unsafe the internet is today. And um, I'm, I'm going to spare you that because I think we're all aware of um, all yeah. those threats and yes. dangers out there. But someone in the organization has to own this and has to drive it and, and, and be a sponsor. So if you have an organization where there is a some, some kind of a security management layer and somebody can own and, and drive this, it'll be mandated from, from the top down. And the reality is that it ends up with us engineers, right, to implement. Well, and that's that's a clarification point. I mean, do do we as engineers implement a business policy that's been handed down? Do we tell the business what the policy should be? Do you have a take on that? Um, so my take on this is that you have different levels of maturity of organization, some better than others. Others just dictate that this must happen and how it happens is mostly major question mark on so as a consultant i would 
visit a customer and we sit in a meeting and, and talk about this. And there may or may not be a framework already laid out. And the job of the architect would be to sort of get all this information out of the customer's head. You know, what, what do you want to have connecting to your network? What are you allowing and what don't you want to allow? And what is allowed to talk to what? <laughs> okay, I'm laughing because in my consulting uh, background, whenever you ask someone like that, well, well, what is it you're trying to do? So often they don't, they aren't able to articulate it beyond, well, I don't want any bad things to happen and I only want the good guys to connect, which is insufficient yes. to build a meaningful policy. Yes. And also, if you keep the vendor's presentation in the back of your mind and you remember those slides where they tell you how easy it is to profile all your biomedical devices and it's just so easy when when you when the rubber hits the road and you and you do this for real, you will realize that um, there is this one little device that doesn't quite play ball or. <laughs> And, the, and these are the things, even in the early discovery meetings, you will not know. It, it will be a journey of discovery. Therefore, if you come swinging with, we're going to go all out with uh, with certificates, client certificates to, to do authentication, yep. you, you also, that's not going to work for everybody because of the oddball uh, one-off thing, the IoT device, whatever, that just can't do that. Yeah, so we love to throw that word around certificates. Everything's going to be certificate enabled, which if the device can do it, that is the gold standard. That is something that everyone strives for. Uh, and if you can get there as much as you can, you know, enable as many supplicants as you can with a client certificate, then you've done an amazing job. And then you've also improved the security to a point where it's going to be very difficult to try and fake that access or try and fake a certificate to get yourself on the network. That's why it's called the gold standard. Um, but one of the other misconceptions is that that 8021X, which is one component of NAC, hmm. always involves client certificates. It's it's not it, it's not true. There are other methods, EAP methods we, we will be talking about that do not require. So don't panic. You don't need to start rolling out client certificates everywhere to implement a successful 8021X. Um, deployment. I and mean, then, I'll just do MAC addresses because that's good enough, isn't it, Arnie? Uh, you could do MAC addresses, but um, the word MAB or MAC address bypass or MAC authentication bypass is a bypass of all of this. It's, it's bypassing 8021X. That is the get out of jail free card for <laughs> clients that don't have a supplicant as through no fault of their own. There may just be very simple, dumb devices where the software stack is so simple. They don't have a supplicant and we'll describe what a supplicant is uh, later. Yeah. You know what, actually maybe, maybe later is now because we've thrown around several terms here. Eep, okay. uh, just dot one X. You've mentioned supplicant a few different times, um, but maybe we need to walk through the terminology that we're going to be using because it, it bears on the, the entirety of the rest of our conversation. Yeah, so we all love acronyms, and um, the one acronym we already know is the IEEE. So the IEEE uh, standardized 8021X, and it's always with a capital X. So if you're a uh, pedantic individual like me, you'll make sure that the X is always capital. And it's a layer two authentication method. I don't know where else it may be used, but let's just say uh, it's it's used in network switches, wireless controllers. And also on the end, the end devices themselves. Layer two authentication. Just to clarify that, you mean for me to to plug into an Ethernet and be allowed onto that Ethernet layer two? That's what we're talking about, or or wireless. Let's say. 
So the layer one, the medium that you're connecting, whether it be Ethernet or whether it be Wi-Fi, um, think of it the OSI layer. So, so the layer two being the link layer is where the authentication happens. So you don't have an IP address yet. We're not at layer three. We haven't ah. come that far. And all this magic is happening at layer two without an IP address. That's, okay. that's what I meant by layer two. And the protocol that this all runs over is EAP. I call it EAP. I don't know how folks pronounce this EAP. That's how I pronounce it, EAP, yeah. EAP, yep, cool. Yep. Extensible authentication protocol. And it's extensible because there are a lot of EAP methods that can be used within that. So it's not just, well, if we're going to use this protocol, we're going to ask the user to use a username and a password. There are lots of different things. You can use tokens. You can use SIM cards. You can use certificates. A whole bunch of um, authentication methods allowed in the EAP framework. And this is defined by the ITF. So if you have a lot of spare time, read the RFCs. I know I, I, I read a lot of these in a, in a former career where I was working in service provider. And I spent most of the time just reading these RFCs to, to figure out what was going on. Uh, no, oh, that's that's curious. Okay, so you read a lot of RFCs because some people critique the RFCs because maybe the vendor implementation diverges from the standard far enough that it's not overly helpful. But uh, you 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 found those reading the EAP related RFCs worthwhile. They were worthwhile, and maybe because I was working for a large uh, vendor, um, and the customer was a large service provider, one of the largest in Europe. And they were keeping the vendor honest by saying that we were not compliant with section 6.2.4 of the RFC XYZ. And that was certainly the case. So there were certain issues that were found because the customer was referring back to the RFC. And yes, there are musts and shoulds and wills and all these kind of capitalized um, verbs in the RFC. And if, if it just says shall or then, then, then it must happen but if it's just um could i can't remember exactly what the wording was then it may or may not happen yes uh, yes should versus must be i know those are two two of the keywords and very often just because you should doesn't mean you have to and so sometimes they don't and that can get frustrating depending on interop for interoperability concerns and features you expect to happen and behaviors and so on. But okay, that's mm -hmm. an aside. I didn't mean to to take us off the path here. So for our our terminology, we've mentioned we're talking about a layer two authentication method. We haven't even gotten an IP address on the client side yet. Um, we're dealing with EAP, an extensible authentication protocol that has a variety of methods that it can be extended. Uh, give us some more terminology, Arnie. The more terminology, one of the uh, jokes in the industry is that, um, well, why are we still using RADIUS? RADIUS is a very old protocol. If you remember back in the, in the modem days, this um, protocol was invented to you know, handle the dial-in users. And I was certainly one of those. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I was but, an administrator for a Cisco AS5301 with some PRI lines coming into it that people were dialing into all day long. It, yep, Radius was part of yep, that stack. Exactly. And the service providers have moved on since then and used a protocol called Diameter. And obviously the joke is that, you know, it's twice as good as Radius because uh, the Diameter is twice the Radius. <laughs> the, uh, the, the enterprise hasn't used, as far as I know, you don't see the diameter protocol in the enterprise, but it's, um, but I saw it just, just before I left the vendor, uh, that they were using diameter in the service provider space. Oh. It's just a more updated, modern 
you know, cool protocol that um, has a lot more features. Radius is still a very, very nice protocol. I like it because it is a simple protocol. It's a lot simpler than TACAX Plus, for example. And if you get into the next space, you better learn what a Radius packet looks like, get familiar with the Wireshark output, and just look at those attributes. And a lot of the stuff that we talk about just makes instant sense when you when you see these packets in Wireshark. Now, not, uh, not to confuse simple. things, but when you do light up Radius and begin communicating with a Radius server, the device that is doing that is doing so over layer three. That is, it's happening at an IP level. Just to disambiguate the layer two versus now we're actually talking about a layer three comms that happens to be happening. Yeah, so it's um, without a diagram, it's difficult to explain, but maybe we should explain what a, what a supplicate. So the, the, the three actors in 802.1x, who are they? So there is always a supplicant, which is the client. We use the word supplicant because it also talks about the software that's on the client. So think about your, your Mac uh, um, operating system or Windows or any operating system. It'll have some piece of software that's called the supplicant. And in Windows, for example, if you want to do wired 802.1x, you even have to start a, a Windows service, which will handle all this stuff. So you're very conscious of what you're doing when you enable the wired service for, for Windows, as an example. In other operating systems, it's just there. It's just a, a network setting. And that's where you would configure your, uh, your EAP methods and you put your certificates and all that kind of stuff. That's the supplicant. And then... The thing in the middle is the authenticator. That'll be something like a switch or a wireless controller or maybe a VPN concentrator, anything that is sort of terminating the client connection. And this is where the translation happens, Ethan. This is where the E gets packaged into a Radius packet. And Radius is a UDP protocol, so it runs on top of IP. And being UDP, it's send and forget. There is no guarantee it's going to get to the other end. There is no... TCP implementation of Radius, as far as I know, but there is something called RADSEC or Radius Secure. And I've never implemented it myself, but if you are transporting Radius over an insecure connection, maybe to the internet, maybe to public cloud, it's not over some encrypted VPN, you may want to look at RADSEC. Or maybe you're just worried about people snooping on your UDP traffic. As I said, if, if you take a TCP dump uh, of this Radius traffic, you can look inside those packets. You won't decode the password without the Radius shared secret. So the, the, the shared secret has to be set equal on both ends. Mm -hmm. If you know what that shared secret is, you can decode passwords in Wireshark. So that's that's one of the drawbacks um, of that. So I, so I think we've got the three components here that are performing the authentication, if you will, um, is actually really straightforward. We've got a client, something we're trying to bring onto the network, a Windows device, let's say, a Mac, uh, iOS device, whatever, some some endpoint, it's got a supplicant. The supplicant sends an EAP request to the authenticator, which is going to be the switch, the thing that it's plugged into or wireless LAN controller or something like that, depending on what it is. Uh, that switch then, let's say for this example, can talk to the radius server and it's been configured with share secrets and the switch knows where the radius server is by IP address. It's going to perform some kind of a UDP communication. Hey, I got this EAP authentication request and I'm handing this off to you, radius server. And then there's some radius server that's sitting there on the other end getting this thing, like an icebox or a Clearpass, something like that, that can perform the authentication and 
has a policy installed and is able to decode the authentication request and send it back to the authenticator, who I assume then sends it back to the supplicant? Exactly. So an EAP conversation is quite a lengthy conversation. If you think of a, a regular modem dial-up back in the day, it would be an access request. This is my username password. And then the radius server just looks you up and says, yep, you're a paid customer and sends back an access accept. And then, you know, the modem port is opened and you get your internet. With EAP, there's a lot of to and fro. And the reason is that you have to set up a secure tunnel. And in order to set up a secure tunnel or a TLS, um, uh, tunnel, there has to be an exchange of certificates. And that'll be at least the server certificate that is exchanged. So the radius server identifies itself with its server certificate and says, uh, this is my certificate. And then the supplicant, it's up to the supplicant whether or not they want to trust or care about that trust. And this is, again, where good housekeeping comes in that back in the day, people didn't really tick that little box to say, check who you're speaking to. We just we just want this thing to work, right? Um, but but a security conscious person would tick the little box and say, make sure that this that my radius service certificate was signed by DigiCert. And not just any DigiCert, but this particular issuing uh, DigiCert, or maybe it was your internal PKI, for example. And that'll already tighten the security. And you can even go one step further and say, make sure that the domain that I'm connecting to in that certificate is something like um, mycompany.com.au. And if that's not in the certificate, well, then I'm probably talking to a man in the middle. So that's where right. the security so the, the, is. The point is here is to avoid, as a supplicant, talking to a radius server that is not who you want it to be. You want to be delivered a policy that is from a trusted source. So therefore, you check that it's uh, from a CA, a certificate issued by a certificate authority you trust that's in your your chain, and then that is from a domain that you actually care about, not some you know third party oddball domain. Okay, yeah, exactly. And it's it's gotten to the point where Android ten clients, for example, so Android was always the one that was just very reckless. You could take an Android device and just connect to dot one X and it would not even care about the service certificate. You could configure it and you can tick the box, whatever, but by default, it wouldn't care. But from Android 10 onwards, you had better trust that service certificate and specify the domain. So if you put that into your MDM configuration, that's easy. But if some random individual um, comes up to the one X and connects, the dialog will come up and say, which CA signed the cert and which domain you're connecting to has become a lot stricter and, and security conscious. Now, you mentioned TLS somewhere along the way. Now, TLS to me is there's a uh, effectively a, a tunnel or an encrypted session that ends up once you've done this authentication with certificates. So who is the TLS between? Is it supplicant and radius server with the authenticator, the switch or wireless LAN controller somehow in the, still in the middle? Uh, it definitely well. So in the in the case of wireless, if you if you think about how we connect to a wireless network, uh, there is a mode that the um, that the wireless controller calls WPA Enterprise mode, and this is different to any other WPA mode. For example, pre-shared key, where the administrator of that wireless controller configures the pre-shared key. So that is say. I don't know, password one, two, three, and the client has the same pre-shared key, password one, two, three. So that is mutual. You, know, you, have, you have to have the same 
password on, on both ends. In the enterprise, you want to generate a per session password. And part of this TLS tunnel establishment is to generate that cryptographic material that the radius server will then eventually hand to the client to say, to encrypt your wireless traffic, this is the keying material that I've generated for you for your session. Go ahead and use this. And that is what is used to encrypt the wireless. But the EAP conversation itself is also going through an encrypted tunnel. And TLS being transport layer security is not, it's it's kind of based on a public key uh, encryption, the same concepts of public key, private key. It, it gets really, really complicated, but, it, but as far as the end user is concerned, all we need to care about is that we have a valid service certificate. And in the case of the EAP TLS method, that the client has a certificate as well. So we haven't really, um, you know, broken apart the different EAP methods themselves. Right, right. So, so quick comment to those of you listening to this. If TLS is, you're curious about the specifics of that, which, you know, we're, we're not going to get into that too deeply on this show. There is another show in the heavy networking catalog that I recorded with Ed Harmoush where we dive into TLS 1.3 pretty deeply if you wanted to nerd out about that. But I'll, uh, Arnie, I'll let you get back to uh, talking about our different EAP methods. Yeah, I'm just too afraid of the mathematics behind TLS. That's why <laughs> there's a lot to it. Yeah, Ed gets into it in a lot of detail in that show I mentioned. Yes, yeah, I take my hat off to those guys. Um, so, the EAP methods that I see in the wild is usually uh, EAP PEEP or protected EAP. That's the, what the P stands for. And the other one is uh, EAP TLS, also known as certificate based authentication. And then EAP SIM, which literally refers to the SIM card in your mobile phone. This was the first EAP method that, that I was uh, introduced to when I got on this journey some seven, eight years ago. And EAPSIM is an interesting one and in that service providers wanted to get you off the cellular network onto the Wi-Fi hotspot in areas where they hosted their Wi-Fi. So for example, train stations, airports, hotels, anywhere where there was a high density of users but without the hassle of having to log into a portal and, and register and all that kind of stuff. So EAPSIM is, is, is an amazing EAP method that literally transparently log, uh, moves you from um, cellular over to wireless without the user even being aware of it. And it's using the credentials and the SIM card to do that. But, but, so, but again, contextually, this is going to be more of a service provider play, EAPSIM. Yep. In the enterprise, we're probably going to be using EAPPEEP or EAPTLS. Exactly. So, yeah, sorry, I digressed there. Um, the, mm -hmm. the, <laughs> the PEEP, um, protected EAP, is the one that uh, most enterprises use because it's the easiest. And this is the one which is good news for those people who don't want to implement certificate-based auth. All it requires is a username and a password. And that username and password has to be stored on some kind of an identity source that can handle uh, a challenged authentication protocol, so something like MS Chat V2. So for example, you can't use LDAP as your identity store for this because LDAP doesn't do challenge handshake authentication protocol, but you could store it on Active Directory. Mm -hmm. You could store it on um, uh, your, your Radius server itself. So those are, the, those are the two places where you would store those credentials. When I've set this up, it's always been a pass through to Active Directory as the authentication method for the username and password handed through from the client. 
Yep. There is a very nice table that the free radius guys did, and I think some of the vendors do it as well. And they show you which EAP method can handle what type of authentication. So you might be tempted to use LDAP, but you'll find out that LDAP doesn't handle the password. Um, and so you go back to Active Directory. And then there is EAP TLS. That's the one where the client has to be provisioned with a certificate, and that certificate is handed to the radius server. The radius server looks at that certificate figures out is it cryptographically trusted and picks out identities from that cert, looks it up in AD if you want, uh, retrieves all the groups and knows what that what that user is authorized to do. So Arnie, I'm, I'm, I'm trembling and sweating uh, because now <laughs> I have to have a client certificate creation and distribution method to push legitimate client certificates out to all those endpoints so that they, and then they have to present them. Should I be sweating is, or is it really not that bad? And I'm just being a big baby. Uh, you should be sweating. And <laughs> uh, these, these uh, individuals in the IT uh, infrastructure or called um, PKI engineers or public key infrastructure engineers or security, or maybe there's just one individual in the organization that, that handles the internal certificate authority, um, those certificates would originate from your own internal PKI. You wouldn't go out to a public CA and buy client certificates. Not that I'm aware of anyway. No, would be right. far you'd, too you'd have a local, local server that you ends up in your trust chain. Um, so it yep. appears to be legitimate and a trusted uh, um, issuer for the client side certificate. But still, it's a thing that you have to maintain and maintain the integrity of. And then, yes. you know, it's, it's just another layer of complications. So Arnie, just a kind of a practical question here. Is this what you see most folks moving to? Are they doing client certificates and then using EAP TLS? Or are most folks more in the EAP peep camp with the username password passed through to AD, presumably? I think in the Windows environment, in the Windows ecosystem, it's kind of a no-brainer. If you think of a traditional organization today, a lot of them still use on-prem Active Directory. Their workstations are domain joined. And when you are domain joined, you can use tools like group policy to push profiles down to the clients. You can enable services. You can uh, enroll these machines with the machine certificate. You can enroll users with client certificates. All of that magic happens with group policy. I'm making it sound easy. A lot of the time people scratch their head and figure out which little box to tick in the group policy uh, deployment stage, but if you prototype this on one device and then hand it to the engineer who does the group policy, it should be quite a no-brainer. The other way of doing it is to employ a an MDM or an, an EDM, sometimes they call it an endpoint device manager, something like an Intune or an AirWatch or you name it, Meraki, any, any kind of MDM platform, and push those profiles to your devices. And that means that so in, in today's environment where a lot of us are working from home, um, you can onboard a device from home. So you can in-tune yourself from home. You don't need to be in the, in, in the enterprise to do that. And then during that onboarding phase, a lot of stuff happens in the background where certificates are still being requested from your internal PKI, but they are being transported over the MDM and delivered to your end device over something like an MDM. So that also makes life a lot easier. But I'd say that's probably a subject for another podcast, someone who knows about um, <laughs> device management and how that is done these days. But I would say those are the two ways. And you have to worry about the lifespan of these certs. If you have client certificates that are valid for one year, 
Think about what happens at the end of, a, of that one year. How do you refresh that? Will clients get dropped off? Do they have to enroll themselves manually? Does it happen automatically, et cetera, et cetera? So you're right. You have to maintain this beast of, of certificates. You don't have to worry about it, but you just have to have something in place that can hopefully auto-renew these certs. Is is better security, the gold standard, as you mentioned earlier in the show, the primary reason that you would move to a certificate-based infrastructure for the clients? Uh, and Or are there other reasons besides that? There is another reason. And so if you said, I'm not going to do uh, certificates because it's too tricky, I'm just going to use my AD infrastructure and let people log in with their AD credentials. So for, for a BYOD scenario, let's just say you're allowing your employees to bring their mobile devices to work and they can log in with their AD credentials and they get put on the internet just so they can you know get their, uh, their, their internet uh, fix on their mobile devices. That is great. But if you have a company that also mandates a password, an AD password change every 30 days or 60 days or 90 days, what will happen is that you will change the password on your corporate device, but the password on your mobile device it doesn't automatically change. And if you neglect that, what will happen is it'll eventually lock your AD account out because it's trying too many times to connect. So that is what I've seen happen a lot of the time. That's where it backfires. Or if you didn't use AD creds, um, you could maybe consider something like ROPC, uh, which we haven't really uh, gotten into yet, but but ROPC is a I forget what the acronym stands for is a is a whole protocol on its own that talks to Azure AD in the cloud. So imagine you don't have an AD infrastructure anymore, an on-prem AD infrastructure anymore, but you still want to use username and passwords. You can uh, through Cisco Ice uh, 3.0 introduce this feature that you can establish a secure tunnel to um, Azure or Azure and have users authenticating with a username and a password without even needing an on-prem AD anymore. And that'll so use- You can establish that tunnel without having to have fully authenticated because you're still in the authentication process. So it's a, almost like a special permission to make this connection to the Azure-based AD. Sorry, I, I didn't explain that properly. Um, it's the um, connection is between the Radius server, so ICE oh, in this not, case, not between the, and the Azure. Yep. Not between the supplicant. Got it. Okay. Yes. Yep. So it's a nailed up. And then when a user connects to the SSID, they can use uh, EAP TTLS. This is currently the only EAP method that is uh, available. And it'll require the user to type in the username and their password. And that is sent over actually in clear text over that secure tunnel over to Azure. And then it's kind of like having an on-prem AD, but um, it's all in the cloud. The only complexity or the caveat with this is that uh, Apple devices don't support EAP TTLS natively. So you have to provision it via an MDM oh, or okay. use something like an Apple configurator, but it does work on Apple devices, just um, out of the box, not so easy. Hmm. So that is that is quite an, a good thing for, I see a lot of people moving away from on-prem AD and they, but they still want to maintain that username, password, authentication. And this is one way that you can um, achieve that. Now, beyond ROPC, I think we've got one more EAP method you wanted to mention, Tunneled EAP? Yes, uh, Tunneled EAP or TEEP. This, this is something that's been missing in the industry for a long time. And, and again, not, not to harp on Cisco, but they filled the gap for the enterprise, the, the Windows enterprise market by 
providing an EAP method that would always provide the user credentials and the machine credentials in one go, something called EAP chaining. Because Windows is a little bit special in that the, the Windows architecture, the multi-user architecture was developed in such a way that when you boot up the machine, the machine does a, a machine authentication. This is before the user has even logged in. We don't know who the user is because they haven't logged in, but the machine needs to be on the network. So there is a machine authentication. And if you configure your subliquent to do machine authentication, this is the time when it will happen during boot up. And then the user is looking at the lock screen and they type the username password, log into Windows. That's when the user authentication happens. So you can choose whether you want another network authentication to happen at that point. This is not AD authentication. This is network authentication. So you may be sending a, a user certificate or a user credential to the network to say, Arnie's just logged in. Where do we send this guy? Is an employee? Is, a, is he a contractor? Who, who is this person? And you may want to switch a VLAN at that point and put that user on a different VLAN, all that kind of jazz. And then when that user logs off, again, a machine authentication happens. So you may need to restore the VLAN to the, to the default VLAN where all the, you know, the maintenance happens or the, the non-user type of stuff happens. So that's why Windows is, is kind of special. So this never really used to work that well with a native Windows supplicant. So Cisco came out with the AnyConnect NAM plugin. So this was a piece, extra piece of software. It kind of replaced the Windows supplicant. Mm -hmm. And it did this thing called EAP chaining, which used yet another EAP method called EAP fast. <laughs> and so EAP fast uh, would chain a whole bunch of things. It would send the user credentials and the machine credentials in one go. Because you can, you can get into situations, especially when your machine goes into power saving mode or sleep mode, and you come out of power saving mode, what state are you in? I don't know. I'll just log in. Oh dear, I've logged in, but I don't have any network. Why? Because the user authentication wasn't configured to do uh, network authentication. Mm -hmm. So now you go, oh, actually what I need to do is a machine authentication. So what do people do? They log off and log in again. Hey, the network works again. So there, you get yourself into situations where you are reliant on EAP chaining to get you out of these situations um, where you've where, where the supplicant isn't doing the right thing. And to cut a long story short, tunneled EAP is a standardized version of uh, this um, uh, EAP, EAP chaining. I interrupt this podcast for a look back and a look ahead with sponsor NS1. Let's look back first. When I was the hostmaster for a regional ISP, I would build zone files for my customers by hand in bind using VI. The bind server didn't have much in the way of intelligence. Bind just served up the A records and the C names, et cetera. And we hostmasters would observe things like transactions per second and query response times. And those were our success metrics. Woohoo! And 20 plus years ago, that was fine. But as we catch up to today, you're going to want actual intelligence in your DNS, which is what NS1 gives you. You stand up your NS1 account in the cloud. It's a SaaS service and do your configuration like you'd expect. And then NS1 can make sure that as client requests come through, they get handed off to the server that will give that end user the best experience. 
How does NS1 deliver this? Well, NS1 is globally distributed and they take measurements from everywhere. Billions of measurements on a variety of metrics and all that metadata gives intelligence to the DNS routing decision. Let's say your application delivery stack is all over. A variety of public clouds and some of your own DCs or colos and some CDNs that you're using. NS1 is what you're looking for to squeeze every ounce of performance between client and server from your apps. So if you're supporting that sort of an organization, the cloud native org, right? Then the answer to your next question is yes. Well, what was the question? Does NS1 support automation in my pipelines? You know, all the DevOps stuff. Yeah, absolutely. NS1 is a Terraform provider, a well-documented API that's public as well. In fact, you can go to their API docs. It's all public. You don't even have to climb a reg wall. There's more NS1 stuff that we could talk about. For example, NS1 has partnerships with Catchpoint, ThousandEyes, Datadog, and Ansible, and more. And there's some other really interesting use cases, like their VPN traffic steering one, which really captured my attention. NS1 also works with some of the biggest infrastructures in the world, like eBay, Dropbox, Salesforce, LinkedIn, and more. And if they can support those guys, I mean, I think they're certainly worth putting on your DDI evaluation list. For more information, visit ns1.com slash packetpushers. That's ns1.com slash packetpushers for a free account, and they'll even throw in some swag for you. ns1.com slash packetpushers. And now, back to today's episode. Now, if you're listening and your head is swimming with all of the acronyms and the different EAP methods and all this stuff that Arnie and I have been talking about, let's pause for a second and do a quick review. What we were actually setting up for you is the rest of the conversation. Uh, so you kind of can, can follow some examples and some more details about how you might implement this in your company. And we really focused on three things. A client, some kind of an endpoint that you're trying to get on the network in a secure way. That client's going to have a supplicant, and that supplicant's going to, or any correct, cut in and correct me if I'm getting any of this wrong. Uh, that supplicant's going to run some kind of EAP to the authenticator device, kind of the, the one that's in the middle. The switch or the wireless LAN controller that this device that's trying to get on the network can talk to so far. The authenticator, that switch or wireless LAN controller, is going to talk radius to a radius server. So the supplicant has got some kind of an EAP authentication something going on, hands it to the authenticator. Authenticator turns that into a radius request, hands that off to the authenticating server, the radius server, your Cisco Icebox, a River ClearPass, et cetera, who is then going to get that inbound authentication request and process it in some way. Maybe it's going to go against Active Directory to authenticate via username and password if that's the method being used to do the authentication. Maybe it'll do something else, all depending on what you've configured the system to do. If the authentication passes, it's going to hand that authentication, yay, thumbs up, back to the authenticator, who is going to respond via EAP back to the supplicant and say, you're good to go. Now, there may be a lot of exchanges back and forth. There may be client certificates involved. There may be you know, more to the story here. But in a, in a nutshell, that's what's happening. The details that Arnie was getting into with the different EAP methods, whether or not you're using a, a server certificate, whether or not using a client certificate to do the authentication, uh, all translates into what your different EAP methods are that you might be using and also handles certain situations like you were mentioning at the end, Arnie, with EAP, uh, TEEP, Tunnel EAP, um, where... A device is waking up from sleep and, you know, maybe has some uh, a, a special situation to get re-authenticated to the network to overcome that. Uh, I, did I get most of that right, Arnie? 
You did, and and I think you you rescued a whole bunch of people that are maybe <laughs> you know fallen <laughs> off the wagon by now. Um, and 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 you can see why this gets complex um, so quickly because you will get into the weeds with these things. But it's not scary. It's it's just you you just got to go out there and, and give it a go. And a lot of this will make sense. And hopefully we're helping people who maybe, you know, just trying to get over the barrier um, with this. Uh, so so yeah, at been a this good point, the, the radius server component sort of magical. Now, when you and I were chatting about this show before we started recording, you, you know a bit about Cisco ICE. Is that right? Yeah, unfortunately, um, fortunately or unfortunately, I live in the Cisco world mostly, but I have worked on other radius platforms as well but essentially all radius servers all do the same thing they all do something called AAA, which stands for authentication authorization and accounting and if anyone here has done their ccna or uh, or above you'll you'll always this is always like the chapter at the end of the book when they talk about network security authentication who are you do yeah. you have the right credentials authorization okay i know who you are but now what are you allowed to do now that i know who yeah. you are and then accounting yeah. uh tracking what's been going on during that session logging you could think of it that way maybe uh yeah. that's that's a that's a that's an understatement but uh but yeah accounting is basically logging so okay so if i'm using cisco ice I, we can refer to that if you like um uh, authentication. I think everybody gets credentials and we've talked about that. Username and password may be passed through to Active Directory for authentication or a certificate. I'm a client. I've got my legit certificate that's trusted here, here, who here's who I am. Um, Mac authentication mm -hmm. bypass where I could, if at worst comes to worse, I could at least present my layer two Mac address as a form of, uh, of authentication. Um, yep. that, that kind of makes sense. Is that something I have to set up? I, I assume I go into my icebox and I got to set all that stuff up so that it knows how to handle the credentials being passed to it. Yeah. Yes. So, so in, in most radius servers, you would have some kind of setting for the external identities, or at least in ICE, it's called an external identity. You can also have internal identities. If you wanted to, you could have all your employees in, in your radius server and never touch AD. But the whole idea is you don't want to give people different passwords and all that kind of jazz. So you would you would tie into an, an AD infrastructure. And then if ICE needs to do an authentication of uh, an identity such as a, a username, it'll look it up in AD. You can you can look it up in AD if it's not found in AD, then look internally. If it's not found internally, then you know reject the user. Uh, the, but the MAC address is an interesting one because um, MAC addresses can be used as an authentication method or, or they can also be used to authenticate returning visitors. So for guest portals, for example, you, you don't know who's gonna connect to your guest portal ahead of time, but if you've seen them once, you may use their MAC address on the subsequent visit to not give them a splash portal, for, for example. Oh, I've or already you may... seen you before. We don't we don't need you to go through the portal and do the thing because I already, exactly. more or less, I trust you because I've seen your MAC before. Yep. And then MAC address is uh, used for the map where you don't have a supplicant. So the only thing that your layer two is giving you is a, is a MAC address. And even that is getting complicated and almost unreliable these days because of a MAC randomization, but we'll, we'll get onto that later. So, um, so, okay. So I've, I've, we, we've configured our radius server to handle authentication in one of a variety of ways. It could be an external entity. It could be my own internal as the radius server user database, whatever it is. 
now that I know how to authenticate, and let's say I've passed the authentication, um, Radius will also need to authorize me to do something that is, yes. it's not an all or nothing. Oh, hooray, you're here, and you can you have access to the full network. It's, hooray, you're here, and here's what you're allowed to do. So what, is that, yep. what does that mean? What does that actually look like, Arnie? In most cases, we use groupings, so AD or Active Directory security groups. You're a member of the employees group. You're a member of the human resources group, et cetera. And, and because and when ICE looks at user up, it also retrieves the groups for that user. And then, and then your policy set can do an authorization check to say, if you're a member of the employee group, then you go to VLAN X. And if you're a member of the contractor group, you'll go to VLAN Y, something as simplistic as that. But it also, I mean, you can make it as complicated as you like. Um, any kind of attribute that is tied to that Active Directory user can be used in an authorization profile. But the most common one is the security group, the AD security group, or maybe you're part of an OU, an organizational unit in AD. And um, that is where we would um, authorize the user. But more, um, more to, to be even more precise, you can use pr uh, a profile um, attribute of that user. So let's say uh, it's Arnie that's logging in, but he's coming in from a Windows device, but he's supposed to have a Mac device. So I can even profile that endpoint to say, uh, oh, so, so, sorry, the, um, the authorization rule to say, I only want that user to connect when he's coming in via a certain operating system, for example. So that could be based on an endpoint profile. You can also do things like posture. So have you done something weird to your device? Has, is it no longer compliant because there's an agent running on the device that constantly checks the posture? So, okay, you've you just implied something that's really important here because any of us that have typed a username and password didn't know exactly what that is and what that means, and it is device independent. It's just some credential where I'm, I'm presenting that. But in NAC, we're not just talking about that aspect for the, the authentication component. We're also uh, profiling the device itself that that user is logging in from. So I present um, my username and password, let's say, but also I'm assuming the supplicant that's running on the client can gather metadata about that device and hand that through to the Radius server, that the Radius server is now evaluating what this device endpoint is, operating system and, and whatever else to determine, quote unquote, a posture. Yeah, the only time I've seen that happen via the supplicant, and remember that um, when you're still at that stage where you're talking layer two, you, you're not communicating DHCP, you're not communicating HTTP, all of that metadata is not available yet. But one of the supplicants that does provide a lot of metadata is something like a VPN client. So if you use the like a Cisco AnyConnect, mm -hmm. that thing just provides a whole bunch of information. That thing to is... That thing's scary, Arnie, and it was scary 10 years ago when I was actually <laughs> running AnyConnect and the amount of information it would tell us and the amount of pro the profile decisions we could make was frightening. I can only imagine where it's come in the last decade since I happened to work on that kind of infrastructure. Yep, yep. But I would say at the authorization stage, if you're doing .1x, most folks will just use group membership and just switch that user in the right VLAN, um, apply an ACL or do, do whatever. MDM is a, is a really, really good one. So if, you, if you've got a BYOD or bring your own device type of um, environment, 
you may have an MDM or a, a mobile device manager or endpoint device manager, whatever you like to call it, that um, also does a compliance check. It's kind of like, like posture, but in this case, the MDM is doing it. So have you jailbroken your iPhone? Have you got some kind of malware on your, on your Android device, et cetera, et cetera? And the MDM informs ICE and says, uh, this is a registered device, but this device is no longer compliant with the policy that you've set up. So when it comes to authorization stage, watch out for this guy and do something, put that user into a quarantine VLAN, for so example. Not the, so the supplicant itself doesn't gather that metadata, but 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 will pass that metadata through from the mobile device management client that's, that's running on there, something I'm, like that? I'm glad you asked that question because you're, you're asking the question, how does... How does ICE know um, to, to, to connect the dots between the MDM and, and the client? And, and currently it's based on the MAC address because we're, again, we're still at the layer two. We only have the MAC address. So the MAC address is sent up to the MDM via some kind of a REST, REST API protocol and say, this, I've seen this, this MAC address. Can you tell me the, the, the MDM status or the, or the posture status of this client? And then you can pull that down in real time and maybe the okay. Intune server will, will say, this user has got a serious problem and you need to do something. And that's where ICE will get informed. It also does periodic checks. It'll maybe pull down the status of all the known endpoints every four hours, all active sessions. So you may be connected, you walk into the office on 8 a.m. in the morning and you're sitting there for eight hours a day. So sometime in the middle of the day, you might want to do a posture assessment and just check in with the MDM to say, is this machine still okay? And the frequency of how often you check is up to you, but let's just say it happens every four hours. If something happens within those four hours, you can change the authorization of that user and chuck them into a quarantine VLAN because of something that may have happened. But that's the radius server doing that check on the back end. So the, yes. where, where I was falling down is somehow I thought it had to do with the authentication slash authorization process where a bunch of attributes of the client were being handed through via EAP and then into radius. But no, it's just the MAC address is known. The, ra the radius server is configured to talk to the MDM server. Hey, here's a MAC that's asking me to authenticate. Tell me about his yeah. posture. And then the MDM gives the data back. So you have to have an MDM in a radius server that, that know about each other. There's been some integration done between the, yes. the makers. Yeah. Yes. And also, also consider when do these EAP authentications happen? It's not just when, when Bob walks into the office on a Monday morning and connects to the network and it happens once uh, and that's it for, for the day. These, these, of these layer two authentications happen depending on how the network is set up. So in the case of a wireless, if it's not set up optimally, every time the user roams from one access point to the other access point, a dot one X authentication will happen. Or maybe you're just sitting at your desk and the Wi-Fi just kind of dips and suddenly the other access point is stronger, another EAP authentication will happen. There are there are optimizations and fast roaming algorithms that will, you know, cache these things for a long period of time. But you you can get into a situation where you have authenticated uh, 20, 30 times in one day without you even knowing that it's happened in the background. Hmm. Uh, and for in the enforcement that happens from the, so during my authorization part of this process, we've done this posture assessment, that posture assessment might change, et cetera. But to do the actual enforcement, you said VLAN, I can drop someone into a specific VLAN. You also mentioned ACL. I'm assuming that means switch port ACL. 
can we be more specific on the ACL thing? Is that like, here's the name of an ACL switch. You should find it in your configuration. Apply that one. Or is it actually a full list of ACEs that I'm maintaining on the radius server itself and sending those to the switch and saying, here's your list of uh, switch port uh, ACLs, make it so. Yeah, so again, it comes down to, is it a wireless controller and or is it a switch? And some vendors do it differently. So for example, um, in the Aruba world, you will talk about a user role. So you would switch the user role from an employee to hacker, for example, just a technical extreme case. And when you switch that role, the Aruba switch or the Aruba wireless controller will know what to do. And, and internally in the wireless controller, it'll potentially put that user in a different VLAN. It may apply an ACL at the access layer, but in the Cisco world, so an, an ACL on a wireless controller will be applied immediately. If you, if you send back a radius attribute to a wireless controller, it will apply that ACL and maybe block all intranet and maybe even send back a URL, a redirection URL to redirect that user to a page to say something is wrong with your machine and contact IT help desk. Um, and on the switch side, you can do something called a downloadable ACL where the radius server will download a whole bunch of permit and deny statements mm. and apply those. Cisco switches are tricky beasts. And in my experience, every model of switch is slightly different, every iOS. So you have customers that still have iOS 12 floating around, and then others have moved to iOS XE and or they've got a mix and match. But that, essentially- That, that yeah. is to say, depending on where you're at, you can't just shove a configuration block at the box and expect it to work. Is that where no. you're going with this? Okay. Oh yeah, and and we'll talk later um, also about the different sort of um, phases of doing Wired NAC because Wired NAC is the is the trickier one. Yeah. But um, yeah, maybe, maybe let's just leave it there for yeah. now. But yeah, so <laughs> you, can, you can switch VLANs to ACLs, yeah. and if, and if you're in the TrustSec world or the you know SDA software defined architecture, you may apply different a scalable group tag, um, as it's called, but we're not going to get into TrustSec here, but those are the kind of things that you would typically do. Okay. So we've talked about authentication and now authorization and the ways that you can uh, figure out what the authoriz authorization should be and then how to enforce it. One last piece of this, as this inevitably breaks down, Arnie, is it the accounting process that helps me troubleshoot this so I know what's why someone was granted something or not granted something? <laughs> It's not so much for the forensics, it's more a case of session management. So if you want to know that, that a session is alive, how do you know that it's alive? If something is plugged into a switch or something's on the wireless controller, how does the radius server know that that session or that that user is still there or not? And also, if you wanted to do something to that session, you need to have some kind of an ID, some kind of a session ID with which to do it. And the accounting is there to keep that session data alive. So there's accounting start at the start of the session. And that is a radius packet that contains a whole bunch of information about that session. In the old days, it used to be about, you know, the number of bytes and packets that the user has generated. But in our world, it's more a case of keep that thing alive. So it's more, almost like a heartbeat. Hmm. And you have interim accountings to say, you know, this, this PC has been up for like 
uh, a month, but every two days I get a sort of a gratuitous interim accounting update to say, hey, I'm still here. Okay. You know, and also for licensing, um, to make sure that, you know, we, you know, we are honest about the license uh, utilization. That's, that's basically what it's for. Not so much for forensics, although you can go through your accountings to see, you know, when did Ethan log in? When did his session die? But that's kind of all you can tell from that. Hmm. Because it, right, it is the, 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 the punctuation marks on the, uh, the sessions, if you will. Yeah. Uh, unless yeah. about, I denied so-and-so access because reasons. It's not really about that, you're saying. No, that's where the the logs would come in. So you would um, okay. generate some some kind of a log and syslog it off to your data lake and do all your analysis there about why, what happened, and when. So here's a design question for you. Then we've really talked about uh, or implied how critically important the Radius server is to all this. So. Do I have two, what do you do? Build two radius servers and have each of them in different physical premises, one up in the cloud and one on-prem maybe? Do you have a design recommendation that works for most folks? I think it's probably sensible to have at least two. And I've seen large organizations that run an entire country's infrastructure just on two radius servers. And for the most part, it's worked really well. It also comes down to scale. But I'd say from a high availability point of view, there will come a time when you need to patch the server. And if you only have one server, it's going to be a bad day. So you have two of these things. And with most enterprise class radius servers, they they synchronize the, the database with each other and keep, you know, they switch, you allow one or the other to be the sort of primary, another one the secondary. But but the radius daemon or the, the radius process in the background is doing all the all the work. And Maybe this could be a whole other podcast about how you set these things, these things up. But let's just say in the easiest scenario, have two radius servers, whichever vendor you like, and have a primary and a secondary. So you jump onto your switch and you configure your AAA and you configure a AAA group. And that group contains of primary server and secondary server. And it's also important to remember that the clients are responsible for detecting failure. Radius server just is just sitting there all day long listening, and the clients are the ones that make the requests. The clients don't make any requests. Radius server has nothing to do. But if a client makes a request to a radius server and the radius server doesn't respond, the client will only be so patient, eventually will switch over to another radius server. You configure a timeout value of some sort. I didn't hear back from the radius server. I'm going to resend it to the next radius server in the list. Something yep. like that. Yep. Yeah. So Arnie, I've actually configured in in the past what most of what we've described, a, a very straightforward um, EAP, PEEP setup against um, multiple radius servers with Active Directory authentication for wireless clients specifically. We never did turn it on for wired. Wireless seemed like the right place to start, and it wasn't too hard to get that going. Is that kind of a pretty typical place to start? It's a very good place to start, Ethan, because it's also the easiest one. And I think it's the one that should always be achievable. And it's the one that I've usually encountered. Most organizations already have it. So by the time I come along, it'll be a case of, hey, can you help us with the wired side? Because that's the that's the tricky one. And that's the one we should be uh, focusing on. So if you didn't have any wireless NAC in your uh, enterprise, it should be quite easy to convert 
say, a, a pre-shared key or a PSK SSID over to an enterprise uh, SSID. Or you may want to have a guest portal solution. You don't need a radio server to do a, a guest portal, especially for small organizations. But if you're a large organization, you may wish to centralize and have the same look and feel. Or maybe you want to customize every location to have its own splash page or its own branding logo, etc. And the only way these things really scale well is to have something that is centralized, a centralized web authentication. And that is where a wireless NAC solution plays really, really well. So pre-shared key SSID, this is the kind of thing we all have in our in our home, in our, yeah. in our broadband. And a lot of companies have too many of these uh, SSIDs floating around. So one way that NAC can help to consolidate these this spread of um, SSIDs is to do something called but at least in the Cisco world, it's called identity pre-shared key. Every vendor has a slight uh, variation on, on a theme. But if you imagine, the reason, the reason that we got into this mess in the first place is because we just wanted to get the, this thing on the wireless. So we just stood up another SSID, we called it IoT, and we got the handheld scanners on the IoT and everyone's happy. And then a year later, somebody else brings up another SSID for the printers and calls it printers. Uh, and this is also pre-shared key. You can consolidate this into one SSID. And the reason you want to consolidate consolidate SSIDs is because every wireless SSID that you bring online consumes additional uh, airtime or yes. um, channel channel utilization. And also you want to maybe constrain things and keep a tight control of these pre-shared keys. So IPSK or identity pre-SK is effectively PSK with one little tick box on that profile to say, do a MAB or do a MAC authentication before you let the user on. So the user still has a pre-shared key profile on their device, but when they connect, they will have to wait a second while the radius server checks that MAC address to say, who are you and which pre-shared key should you be using? If the I server doesn't have a particular um, reason to change a pre-shared key, it could just send back an access accept, and then it will just use the default pre-shared key that's configured on the WLAN profile. But you may, for example, have a bunch of light bulbs that are wirelessly enabled and have a secret just for those and have a secret just for your scanners and for your printers, et cetera, but they're all connecting to the same pre-shared key. Is the differentiation simply in the pre-shared key that a specific MAC address should be using, and but but what they have access to is the same? Or can Radius actually distinguish, oh, you're an IoT device, I can tell by your MAC, you've authenticated with the correct key, and I'm going to stick you in this VLAN or something like that? Yeah, thanks for, um, for clarifying that. You can do all the usual Radius authorization as yeah. part of that. ACLs, VLANs, SGTs, all that good stuff as part of it. But that is a really flexible way of um, keeping that that spread of SSIDs under control. Well, so if I do, can I also do other methods? So, you know, IPSK and using Mac authentication sounds really handy for my IoT devices and such. Um, but if I have a, a more capable client, can I use all the other EAP methods we were talking about earlier? So absolutely. So, And this, as you say, is down to the client. And I would say if a client has a supplicant on it, it'll most likely support all the EAP methods um, that we're familiar with. So EAP PEEP, uh, EAP TLS, TTLS, maybe even EAP FAST. 
There is one old one called uh, Leap, which is an old Cisco one, which if you see that still floating around, you should really consider switching it off. It is a security risk. The security professionals will always point fingers at Peep and say, well, you know, Peep is is crackable. So just, just be aware of it. Um, it. It is possible with a lot of work to, to crack it. And one of my um, employee uh, colleagues actually did it once and showed how vulnerable Peep actually is and that they could, you know, crack it. So you would try and aim for something like a certificate-based authentication um, if you can. I mean, just to, just so the people aren't freaking out if they're trying to figure this out, how crackable are we talking Peep is? Do you need just a lot of CPU and you can brute force it? Do you have to have some sort of domain-specific knowledge that gives you that foot in the door you need to be able to do it? I think there was a little bit of domain specific knowledge involved and uh, this individual did use a cloud-based service to do some crunching and it's not something you would do on your home computer. There was a lot of brute force involved in, in doing that. And, you know, if you, if you tighten the screws a bit and you use TLS 1.2 or 1.3 and just, just a bit of hygiene, you know, to do the best that, that you can, you don't hear a lot of people getting um, pwned because of uh, implementing PEEP. Yeah. Uh, we shouldn't put that kind of fear in people, but but theoretically, it is it is crackable. Theoretically, okay, but it's one of those yep. it's one of those pretty tough ones. Okay, I'm not surprised yep. you said that. All right, okay, so wireless would be a good place to start. I've got um, it's it's pretty well known. Everything you're talking about that this technology has been around a, a long time now many years that you've been able to do this in the wireless world and it kind of became customary because people would <laughs> outgrow just simple pre-shared keys and want to go to something more more grown up more robust all right so let's say we've conquered wireless we're doing knack things are going swimmingly well and we want to make the the leap to wired and uh, and do this more secure authentication for my wired devices what am i getting into arnie yeah, so the wired one is difficult or different to wireless because wireless inherently already mandates what authentication should be used when you connect. So if you think about your pre-shared key, you have to know the pre-shared key before you can get onto a certain SSID. Or if it's an open SSID, there is no authentication. Or if it's a .1x SSID, then you have to have a supplicant. So those three flavors of wireless are very different in how you even get talking to the wireless controller in the first place. On wired, all you have is a port. So you have you have a, an RJ45 cable and you're about to plug it into a port. That, that poor switch has no idea what you're about to plug into it. There is no pre-knowledge of what's about to happen. Well, and, and just taken from a, from an operator or a consumer perspective, the expectation historically has been, plug it in, I get an IP address and off I go. Yes. And I know the reality of people that are trying to run businesses and keep the lights on. They don't want things to not work. It just has to work. So when you plug that cable in, the link should come up and the thing, the device should be talking. So when we come along with our security principles and we want to secure that port, we have to do a lot more work now. We have to understand what is connecting into that port and be able to figure out or guess in some cases what it is uh, to the best of our abilities and then let that um, device on. So we all... <laughs> 
there was so before NAC, you could do some kind of security like um, port security. You probably remember that back oh, in yeah. the day. We used to do MAC uh, limiting, so you can only have two MAC addresses on the port, and the third MAC address comes along, we shut the port down. So that is port kind of port security. Um, and then also the port may either be an access port or maybe a trunk configuration. So we have those variations to worry about as well. And you just don't know what's going on with your switches if you don't have NAC. So NAC comes along and, and, and the promise is that, that that switch port is, is protected. As soon as you plug something in, your NAC solution is going to figure it out for you. Um, and also consistency, every switch port in theory can be simplified a great deal. You can maybe have a template and say, this is a NAC control port. We're going to do 8021X first. We're going to try 8021X. And if the client, there's no supplicant, then we're going to time out and say, we're just going to do MAP and accept the MAC address, send that off to the radius server and see what we can do for this client or how do we handle this client. So there is this this, this ordering and this priority that is something that now becomes significant that with wireless was never an issue. So now you, the question is, well, when, when the link comes up, do I do dot one X first hang around for 30 seconds well, because nothing's happening. I mean, what you're describing here is back in the day, I was knack as a network administrator. What, and what, how, how I mean that is I was one of those operators that would insist that when a switch went stuck, got stood up in the closet, every port was shut down unless you know a help desk ticket had to be created so that if something got plugged into it, I knew what it was, what VLAN it needed to belong to, and I would manually configure the port. And of course, that doesn't scale. So what you're describing is a policy-based way you can leave a switch port online, and when something plugs in, you've built a policy that is going to figure out what's on the end of the wire and do the right thing, configure the VLAN, uh, apply a port ACL like we were talking about earlier, et cetera, so that you can be confident no matter who or what it is that plugs into that port. Um, policy has been wrapped around it so that you've got security there now, as opposed to the ornery network administrator who insists the port is shut down until a help desk ticket comes in and it can be configured lovingly by hand, because lovingly yes. by hand doesn't scale. It just doesn't. Yes, and and um, to to coin a term, it is identity based policy. It relies on knowing the identity of that endpoint, and the identity can be supplicant based, or it can just be the MAC address, or maybe some form of profiling chucked in as well. But you're right. So even if that administrator had configured that port correctly, if I come along after hours and I unplug that desktop and plug in my hacking device, yeah you have bypassed security. So yes, we need some kind of identity-based um, checks for that. So what does that really look like? Well, um, in, the, in the Windows world, if you want to go uh, .1x, you have to enable a, a service in Windows. I think we already mentioned that. And there's also the supplicant uh, configuration involved. And that can be done by group policy just to make things a lot easier. So I would say, in the, as we said before, in the Windows world, it is achievable um, wired uh, .1x through group policy. Where things get a little, a little bit more interesting is with, well, what about other things like desk phones, mm -hmm. conferencing units, uh, access points? Um, I've, I've seen my, uh, ceiling microphones being Ethernet uh, enabled these days, and they all have to be subject to network access control. 
How intelligent is a microphone, you may ask? Well, we'll get onto that later. And th these things <laughs> counteract what you're trying to do because they are not friendly in the, in the NAC space. But no, not, not capable or knowledgeable. They just kind of expect to get an IP address and work. And if they can't, then they don't do much of anything. Desk phones can be a, a, a crapshoot because it could be a very intelligent device that plugs in, expects to trunk to the switch and have a voice and a data VLAN and, uh, you know, and, and go from there or not. It could be something quite different from that. And so you're yeah. describing needing to build out a wireless NAC infrastructure that can handle all of these eventualities, no matter what it is that, got plugs, that, that gets plugged in. I think the reality is that if you're an enterprise that still uses desk phones, um, <laughs> you, you may you may want to have it like a staging area. And in the staging area, you just prep these things and you put the certs on. And so you hand it to the employee and they just plug it in and it just works. But there would have been some kind of maybe um, a call manager or whatever kind of telephony infrastructure you have that helps you and prepping the supplicants to do the right thing. But there is there is help uh, for those sort of enterprise grade. I, I was devices. chuckling a bit because you know if you're still using desk phones, I, I don't know how many companies like that are out there. But you, I still do walk into different places and see Cisco phones on desks, so it is still a thing in places. Yes, yeah, and, and I didn't want to insult anybody who's still using them. I think they're very handy, but uh, because the way the work culture is, you know, we, we want to be more flexible, and everything's moving to the cloud and. All this on-prem stuff is moving away. Even the desk phone is now going the way of the dinosaur. But just an interesting anecdote, uh, when I got involved in Enterprise.1x, it was actually the desk phones that caused a, most of the issues during the authentication because, and this wasn't a Cisco phone, this was another vendor phone that just had the strangest IP stack that would just give up on, on .1x and then give up on DHCP entirely. And then eventually your, your port would just be shut or you'd end up on the wrong VLAN because mm -hmm. the DHCP cycle wouldn't continue. You may have got as far as switching the user onto the right VLAN, but by then the phone had given up trying to DHCP. So the phone was stranded and had no IP address. So again, you don't know what you're gonna end up with until the day comes when you start testing and implementing these devices. And then for this particular instance, we had to prioritize that MAB goes first before .1x, just to give these phones a bit of a head start to allow the phones to get on. But then everybody else suffered as a consequence. Or if you look at the radius server, you see a lot of rejected MAB requests from PCs that have supplicants on them because they were um, subject to this new way of, of, of working. So you know, the, the end devices make your life really tricky. So, so, okay. So the challenge that we're describing then is that because the different stacks that might be on a client device vary so widely getting, what is it? Wh where is the magic getting the switch port configuration, right? The radius server configuration, right? Or both that uh, is, is complex. So the complex stuff I think is on the switch port itself, because in the Cisco world, at least there's uh, different ways of configuring it. So you have the old, uh, the old identity-based networking services 1.0, and then you have the 2.0. So, so the 2.0 is a little bit like, do you remember what Quas config used to be like before MQC or modular Quas CLI? 
Uh, you would do your weighted fair queuing with one set of commands and you do your low latency oh, queue with another set gosh, of commands. Yes. Yes. MQC and you do is your random yeah. MQC just said, hey guys, this is a mess. We need to standardize it. We've got class maps and policy maps and we apply the policy to the interface. Yes. Similar concept with IBNS uh, 2.0. Uh, it's a bit of a mouthful and it, it's, 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 it's something that you may just initially want to just copy and paste and just say, I trust these guys. They know what they're doing. I'm just going to take this chunk of like 50, 60, 100 commands and just paste them into my iOS and everything's going to be fine. But and then when the in dust settles, in an MQC like language, you're saying. Exactly. So you've yeah. got your class maps again, where you define what type of events uh, could happen. So, for example, one of the events may be, supplicant didn't respond so this is from a switcher's perspective supplicant didn't respond server didn't respond uh, or server is back again or any kind of event would be defined as a kind of a class map and then the policy map says taking all these class these these, these class maps these events tie them together and do like an if then logic so if you're a if you've done any programming before you know yeah, if server doesn't respond then put user in auth fail vlan if if the server comes back online again, then put the then reauthorize the user. A lot of if then else, if then else kind of logic, and in a in an MQC style syntax. So it's not pretty, but it does it does work quite well. And so you that's end up building the, that's the a, new world. Uh, you, you build an this is IBNS two You build a, uh, an MQC like policy in IBNS two that should accommodate the sorts of devices that appear in your environment, so that you can successfully handle the requests that are coming through from them and apply a security policy to them that is appropriate. Is that, that's the end game here? Um, it's, it's more a case of handling the events of the EAP conversation, or if EAP failed, then say switch to MAB. So it's more about what the authenticator's job is at that point in time. What is the authenticator trying to do with this authentication that is in progress? Did it, did it succeed? Did the radius server not respond? It's, it's how does it handle external factors? But the actual authentication still happens on the radius server. Hmm. So the authenticator is just the guy in the middle. The authenticator doesn't really care which EAP method you're using um, or, or what profile this end device is. It just has to be the conduit between the client and the radius server. Now you've mentioned MAB, MAC address bypass. How often yep. do we end up invoking that? Is that kind of like <laughs> the, the, the last resort? Nothing else is available to us, so we're just going to use MAC address bypass. Look at the MAC address and then make a decision based on that because it's all we got. Yeah, it's it's that, or sometimes it's just a reality that you have to use MAB in certain cases because some devices do not have a supplicant, and the vendor will never put a supplicant on something like. Um, an access card reader on a on the front door of your of your building, that such a simple device. All is you know when you plug that thing into the Ethernet, it's going to get POE, maybe power over Ethernet, mm -hmm. and it's going to request an IP address and send a MAC address in that case to the switch, and the switch will have to do MAB. So imagine you plug that device in for the first time, and your policy, your IBNS policy says. Hang on a second for 30 seconds. I'm going to listen out for EAP frames. If I don't get any EAP frames, I'm going to switch to MAB. Or it might be the other way around. I'm going to listen out for MAB for 30 seconds. And in the meantime, also listen out for EAP. So if a, if a little EAP over LAN packet comes along, which is a different ether type, 
that packet came along, then I will prioritize that and then switch over to, to eat mode straight away because clients may still be booting up and, you know, you might have some, some kind of a, a, a layer two packet going out of the, the, the PC before the supplicant even has had a chance to come up. So you can, you get this kind of mishmash going on. You can, you can even have both happen at the same time with IBNS 2.0. You can say, I don't care. I'm, I'm going to take one or the other. I'm going to take MAB or dot or dot one X, sorry, um, an EAP frame at the same time. And whichever one comes in first, that's the one I'm going to handle. All right. I just had a horrifying thought. Now, MAC address bypass means there's some kind of a database of MAC addresses somewhere that the radius server is checking against. Where in the heck am I going to get all those MAC addresses from? This is the horror. And you are right. So um, <laughs> the reality is, if you want to do authentication based on MAC addresses, so let's say the the, the dumb device that has no other way out, you have to either get the full MAC address of that device and store it in your radius server, or maybe you have it in an ODBC uh, repository or via LDAP. You can even put them into Active Directory if you really want to. But the easiest way, in the, at least in the case of like ClearPass and, and ICE, is to put them straight into the radius server and put them into what I like to call like a bucket. So you have your IoT bucket or your printer bucket. And if you just chuck all those MAC addresses in there, you can manage it via you know, CSV. You can manage it via REST API. We've had customers that have a nice uh, API front end. And when a new shipment of devices comes along, someone is tasked with the job of just taking all those MAC addresses, punching them into a spreadsheet or scanning them in. An API call does it to ICE. No one is hurt. Everything is, is easy peasy. I, I was going to ask you, I mean, it really does come down to at some point, somebody's got to know what that MAC address is and, and key it in or, or, or something to get it into the database. There's no way around that. You're not going to, you can't, well, I mean, you could learn it, I suppose. Uh, you can. Yeah. You can. So uh, you can learn it via SNMP. If you have an SNMP agent on your switch, you could ask ICE to periodically do an SNMP poll of that switch and it'll pull all those MAC addresses out. Basically but tell me the bridging table. Well, of those, of those endpoints that are in an access VLAN, I guess um, that's the way that I see it. So everything that is plugged into an access VLAN that has a MAC address will be learned and thrown into ICE, but not classified in any way. You don't know, is this a, is this a member of the printer group or the member of the access point group, et cetera. But at least you can learn the MAC addresses that way. But the better way of doing it is via profiling. But let's say, for example, you know that you're going to get a, a hundred devices of the same manufacturer and you you've got one one of two choices you can either take all of those 100 mac addresses store them in ice or you could look at the mac oui or the organizational unique identifier and the first three bytes of the mac address are usually reserved for the manufacturer so if this particular manufacturer is maybe Philips, let's say in the healthcare space it's made by Philips, and it happens to even be more specific and happens to be a Philips in Teleview or something that just happens to be a brand. And it's so specific that they've even named that OUI for that particular uh, product that's that's being used. Then you could save yourself having to enter all those MAC addresses and just use profiling. By, by analyzing the MAC OUI, you can say, yep, this is a 
healthcare product XYZ, and it has to be treated in a certain way. Mac OUIs being, again, the first uh, you know, three bytes or what is it, 24 bit? What? Yes. Tw- yep. <laughs> the three first bytes. half of the MAC address is well known. Those are registered to in, to to vendors to to be used yes. for their systems. And so that's something that can that is known by uh, software. You can just basically look that up. And you're saying if, if you know that those first three bytes are X, it's part of a profile. Um, and you can say, okay, it's a Philips X device. Based on that information, I'm going to treat this device in this way and then apply policy from there. Exactly. If the end client is also configured for DHCP, which isn't always the case, a lot of customers for some reason still like static IP addresses. This makes life difficult because the the DHCP process where it starts off with a discovery, where the client sends out a discovery packet, um, that contains a lot of information, for example, possibly like the client identifier, the host name, possibly some hint about the operating system. Anything that the DHCP client has been configured with helps to tell ICE what we are dealing with. And that is a very, very useful uh, artifact um, when you're doing profiling. Uh, HTTP, if you have a guest portal and a user browsers to your radius server or um, they will provide some some kind of a um an agent an agent string and that is very very rich in information as well operating system browser yep yep exactly cdp or cisco discovery protocol and link layer discovery protocol this is my favorite because these things are pretty hard to get your hands on if you were say a hacker it's it's, it's quite easy to fake a mac address it's it's easy to fake a dhcp client or a http um, header but um you don't see a lot of cdp and lldp around and but but if you see this on your agent try and enable it and you'll be surprised um how many devices have this and because CDP and LDP is very chatty, at, at, at least once a minute, it sends out a packet mm-hmm. both ways. So the switch sends a packet and the client sends a packet full of information, very, very rich um, source uh, of profiling. LLDP being kind of the industry standard, CDP being uh, Cisco specific, LLDP very commonly available out there. And you can flip that on and, uh, and yep. benefit from those advertisements in this circumstance. Yeah. Yep. And just to um, bring some reality context into this. So if you imagine commissioning a wireless access point for the first time, you can literally take that access point out of the box, plug it into a NAC port and just wait for it to boot up. And if it's something like in a, you know, a Cisco or an Aruba access point, it'll start sending one of these link layer discovery protocols out. And then the switch can send that to ICE and then ICE can profile it. So initially, um, you may end up in a quarantine VLAN because we don't know what that device is, but ICE will learn what the device is and eventually put it into the correct VLAN. Or if it's a flex connect, it'll eventually switch that port from an access uh, port to a trunk for, for flex connect mm-hmm. and apply all the right temp, uh, temp uh, the interface template for that. So that is where that would become sort of very much plug and play. Mm. And then there's still NMAP if you really want to like sort of Start hammering the client uh, on TCP port XYZ or UDP <laughs> port. You can use Nmap. Use an Nmap client, right? Hit hit that thing and just see what's out there. See what responds and use it to uh, to to help the radius ha- box have a profile. I hadn't, I hadn't yeah. known that Nmap could be used in that way. That's interesting. 
There are, there are others as well, um, not to digress too much, but um, NetFlow is one of those, especially in the healthcare space, because a lot of healthcare devices are pretty simple devices. The way that you identify them is by analyzing and sniffing out their flows. So you will know uh, by the fact that there are three TCP flows and one UDP flow on, on, on particular ports. If you see that and your NetFlow server is exporting to ICE, ICE has to analyze all this information and eventually come to the conclusion that this is a heart rate monitor because this is how the heart rate monitor behaves. It always has mm -hmm. these, these flows, and, and but you need a NetFlow exporter for that. And then you can do, you can span a port, you can do all manner of things. It's, it gets very, very intensive uh, when you try and profile it, devices. It gets, in, it gets intensive, okay. Is it also error prone where there's kind of a false profile? I don't know how, how many of this sort of, pro, how much of this sort of profiling you've done in the real world, but is this fairly reliable once you get it off the ground? Or is it one of those like, eh, I don't know if we want to do profiling, we're going to create more problems for ourselves than it's worthwhile. It is pretty stable as long as your policies are, or your profiling logic is set up in such a way that is also uh, future proof. So, for example, if you're profiling a, an access point, do you access, do you profile just that model of access point or just any vendor's access point? Because the day comes when you rip out the old access point and plug in a new model and suddenly nothing works anymore because you were so specific and you were profiling a certain model of access point. But, but if you keep it within a certain group of, you know, Cisco access points, you can put in an old access point or a new access point. It'll, it'll always work, but the false positives don't really come in unless somebody has messed up, you know, the, the OUI database, for example, or you've misconfigured something or, I mean, we haven't even talked about the security implications of this. So you could, you could fake a MAC address, right? So what if, what if one day, um, or the, the real device is a windows PC and ice has profiled that MAC address as being a windows 10 workstation. And then the following day, that same MAC address appears, but now it's suddenly a, a Linux operating system. Mm. What do you do? So you can use profiling to even detect anomalies. And then you can either just flag that anomaly to say something smells fishy, or you can automatically act on that anomaly and start to quarantine and say, this is probably some hacking device running Linux that's trying to masquerade as a certain user. So let's, let's deal with that. So Arnie, I want to think about how we would phase this in. That is, this isn't the weekend project where you come in, you know, nail up a radius server, turn on some dot one X configs on the, on the switch port and Monday morning, now you're doing knack. There's gotta be a way you would phase this in, um, on a project like this. So can you, can you walk us through that? Yeah. And, and, and thanks to those who are still listening, <laughs> you got a good <laughs> high tolerance, um, for, for pain. Um, so at least in the Cisco world, they have a phased approach and there's essentially it's a, like a monitor mode, or a low impact followed by a low impact mode followed by a closed mode. And there's varying degrees of um, security. So the, so the monitor mode is just uh, training wheels. Think, think of it as training wheels. You want to, you want to get started, configure your switches for monitor mode, which means you put all the dot one X and MAB and AAA configuration on your switches. But at the end of the day, if you plug your device in there, 
nothing's going to get hurt. No, no one's going to get harmed or hurt by it. No one's going to get rejected or denied. Monitor mode, as in I can tell if I would have been allowed, I'm going to be allowed, but it tells me I did an evaluation and I would have allowed or denied had this been the real thing. Exactly. And the reason that this is also called monitor mode is because somebody should be looking at the end results of all this and going, oh my goodness, we've got a lot of DOF1X failed authentications. Why are these things failing? Ah, we're sending the wrong certificate or we haven't actually configured a supplicant. That's why we're seeing all these MAB authentications. So it's a kind of like a, let's just see what the environment is like. And when we are ready to move to the next phase, we can do it switch by switch. When you configure a radius client in ICE, you give it characteristics like the location, you know, which building, which floor it's in, what what type is it a switch is a wireless controller. And you can add this phase status in there as well to say, this is a monitor mode device. And when you want to take the training wheels off on that switch and go into the next phase, you just change it to low impact mode. Or even if you're going to go right to the end game, closed mode, all you do is you change the status to closed mode. And then the processing in ICE will be different. It'll now hit a different logic within ICE to treat those authentications and authorizations with the with with the harsh, you know, the mm. strict authorization rules to do what it needs to okay, do. Okay. So once again, you've mentioned these three modes, and the, and we're talking we're in the Cisco world right now, talking about that. So if you're yep. in the Aruba HPE world, maybe this is somewhat different. But I'm going to guess there's similar kinds of phases, no matter which NAC you're using. We happen to be talking about Cisco and Cisco's nomenclature right now. So monitor mode, we've got policies that are there; they're not doing anything, but I can see what's happening and make sure, as you put it, Arnie, training wheels make sure that I've got things uh, tweaked and then and then I can move uh, switch by switch if I like from monitor mode to we mentioned two other modes low impact mode and closed mode what's the difference yep. again between low impact and closed closed is the most severe low impact somewhere in the middle so the monitor mode has a port ACL that is essentially allow any any or permit any any and that means that we're never going to deny any traffic no matter what the low impact mode is one where you are a little bit more restrictive on that port-based ACL. So you may only you may implement that as the next phase to say, well, we're only going to allow DHCP and maybe Pixie Boot and a couple of other things, Active Directory, and everything else is still is still um, blocked unless it's authorized differently on the AAA server. And quite honestly, I've not really had the chance to use low impact mode. Okay, for me, it's either been monitor mode. Or closed mode, okay. <laughs> and if I and if I feel that the customer is ready, we go straight to closed mode. Take the training wheels off, push them down the hill, and hope for the best. Yeah. Yes. Well, actually, you're not hoping for the best, are you? Because you've done so much work in monitor mode. The point is, by the time you get to work confident, we can turn on closed mode because you've done all that that legwork and you built your policies and you got everything lined up the way it should be and working properly at that time. Exactly. So that is that should give people some kind of confidence that, well, we don't have to go brute force from day one and go closed mode. You can work through these different phases. And there's a very good document, at least in the Cisco world, the um, prescriptive wired deployment guide, which you can which you can find on the Cisco community webpage, which talks you through this step by step with examples, CLI, 
uh, really, really great uh, document yeah, to guide you through. You'd that recommended to me to, that for me to read that before this, which I read up through the design phase and then kind of skimmed the deployment phase. Because Arnie, you you understated it when you said it shows it to you step by step. I mean, oh baby, does it show you step by step? There's screenshots and diagrams and a whole bunch of different scenarios that are covered. It is a fantastic document. As so often Cisco documents tend to be, it really is good, this thing. So we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes if uh, you're you're curious how to find that. So, okay, monitor mode, low impact mode, most people don't use. We're going to go monitor mode probably to the closed mode um, because you've proven through monitor mode that, that things are set up correctly and you can proceed with confidence. Yep. Okay. Okay. Um, so Arnie, one, one last question I think for you as we, we go to, to wrap this thing up here, you've you raised your hand to talk knack with us because you you've done a bunch of these deployments. So since you've done a bunch of these deployments, give us your, your tips for a successful knack deployment Uh, lessons from Arnie down in the trenches. Who's uh, learned the hard lessons. Yeah. So the thing is to have a plan and, and that doesn't mean, you know, that you need to come along, but it also means that, that the customer should maybe have some, some kind of a plan. If the customer doesn't have a plan, then you come along as an advocate and you have to sort of say from previous experience, this is how we've done it. And then that customer will, will inherit the plan of, you know, your, your personal experience, but every customer is going to be different and everyone's going to have their level of, uh, tolerance and and threshold for security because the more secure you want to make something, the more issues you will run into, or the more complexity you're going to run into, and also have some some kind of a management buy-in. So make sure that you're not just talking to the engineers. You know, I'm an engineer. I like talking to engineers, but that there is some kind of upper management that is also sanctioning this and allowing the time for something to or the or the time to be given to the engineers to do a proper job and not just say get this done in one month time you know uh, or else you're out of a job you know putting putting pressure on people just doesn't really work and unfortunately this is so often the case and i see the engineer being put under some kind of pressure to get something rolled out without having you know the time to to do a proper job um, so buy-in from management, I mean, we're talking IT management, but we're really talking, again, the business side of the house as well, have to understand at least, they're not going to understand the details of this, but they need to have a buy-in that the security that's being gained fr- through this uh, NAC deployment is important enough to the business that they, again, they're not going to know the details, but they got to agree that... Um, there's going to be some inconvenience and some time taken to make all of this happen. Because if you don't have that, you're going to end up with uh, everyone does uh, MAC address bypass, and that's going to be as good as it gets. Yes. Uh, testing is a big one. Uh, at least if you don't have a, a lab to test with, try and find a, a free switch port. If you have to use your production for some kind of um, you know, testing then you know, set aside a couple of ports on your switch or maybe get a, a hidden SSID or something that, that you can test with and just do as much testing as you can. Uh, we could probably do a whole separate section just on, on testing, but one thing I wanted to point out is that you can do a lot of this testing without even needing a switch uh, or, 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 or needing any infrastructure. There's a really, really good uh, tool called WPA Supplicant and it contains a, a tool called ePoll test in there. And this, this is a CLI based tool that runs on say, for example, Linux or Windows. Mm-hmm. And you could fake an EAP PEEP request, EAP TLS, EAP TTLS, 
And I've used this uh, time and time again to prototype my radius uh, policy sets because I don't want to sit with a wireless client all day long and figuring out, you know, what SSID to connect to all that kind of stuff. I may be working from home and just quickly want to prototype something. So uh, the ePoll test is an excellent way of testing your supplicants. And the free radius uh, tool set has a thing called RAD test where you can test your PAP and CHAP authentications. Uh, excellent. These are all open source tools. And I've, I've blogged about this in the past. If you ever did a Google on my name and, and um, WPA supplicant, you might find like a blog series on it. And then the other thing is also to try and know your landscape in advance. So try and figure out what it is that you are, uh, your, your, your end clients. So you can even, for example, uh, take an evaluation version of ICE, spin it up and run a network discovery. It'll, it'll run a network discovery and try and figure out and build this, this endpoint database and profile of what you have out there by just interrogating your network, not doing any NAC, just purely as a discovery tool. And that is just on an eva uh, evaluation version. Um, and pro another product can probably do the same as well, but that's just a good tip to learn your infrastructure. So for example, if you have a, an MDM, maybe um, you know, fig figure out how that, that works, figure out what your BYOD policy is for your organization. Do you want to use an MDM or do you want to use something like ClearPass or an ICE to onboard users instead of an MDM? All of these kind of considerations. And I'm not even talking about cost and licensing and all that kind of stuff, but just, just generally, how do you want the end user experience to look like? How easy or how difficult do you want to make your, your, your users' lives? Um, and then there's a whole bunch of detail about, you know, the, the wired considerations. Um, have a good understanding or, or work with an engineer who has a good understanding of the wired infrastructure about which, which VLANs do what, which ACLs need to be applied. Uh, maybe even read the prescriptive NAC guide that that Ethan mentioned. It's really, really good. And read it a couple of times, actually. Well, it's one of those guides where you don't know what you don't know, things you wouldn't have thought of. And then you get into that guide and it brings out a lot of data like, oh, I actually I have that problem. I would never would have thought of that. Um, <clears throat> and, and again, we're not going to go through every detail here, Arnie, but I think the point is. To successfully pull off a NAC deployment, you need to have, again, it all goes back to that plan. There's a lot of thinking ahead of time that you want to do so that you can proceed in an organized manner, uh, knowing what you're up against. And if yeah. you haven't done it before, that's tough. And so guides listening to a show like this, talking to someone like Arnie helps you increase your chances of success by, again, informing you about the things that you don't know that you don't know that uh, that end up mattering. Exactly. And it's probably um, obvious to most people that you would roll this out in a, in a staged manner or a, you know, just, just, just choose a friendly location, choose just the, just the access switch on the floor where all the IT guys are sitting because they know there's going to be some disruption. You don't, you don't roll this out into a hospital without, um, you know, doing proper testing on it and, um, and thinking about all the, contingencies of what happens if my radius server fails or what what happens if somebody mis misconfigures is there a, is there a contingency uh, what happens if a switch reboots will it remember my sessions mm. will the devices even re-authenticate if a switch reboots i i've seen this where devices will not re-authenticate after the switch stack has rebooted and the port is shut 
and that device at the end of that of that wire doesn't care that the link went down it just sits there and it just says well got nothing to say and therefore the port just stays shut so that is that is a that is a point where you may want to consider well this end device is not going to work in the NAC environment and this is important uh, to some people that there will be some devices that just do not work with NAC. That is that is the reality. Unless you speak to the vendor to say, make your device a bit more chatty or send mm-hmm. something, you know, during boot up or, or force DHCP or whatever it is, make this device more chatty. It may be that you have to just disable NAC on a port and go back to Sticky Mac or go back to your good old fashioned way that you did things in, in the past. Devices that are not chatty, as in if it doesn't say anything, it can't, there's no information that the authentication infrastructure can can work with to figure out what kind yep. of a profile to apply to that board. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. there's no sort of grace period. There isn't like a oh, poor end device. Let me just put you here. I mean, you could, you could put them into a quarantine VLAN, um, but then again, it's sitting in quarantine. It's not on the VLAN that, that it needs to be in to talk to that server on-prem. So you haven't really achieved anything. Yes, you can put it in a quarantine VLAN, but that device still has to give you an identity. It has to give you a MAC address or some sign of life to, to treat it. Well, so Arnie, we talked about a lot of stuff here. So, so here's, and I think... <laughs> Sadly, we haven't gotten into tons of detail that we could. And I don't know how many times in this recording you said that could be a whole other show by itself. So fine. Practical question then. Wireless, I'm probably going to do NAC. That seems to be well known. We've been doing it for years. Wired, is that obvious? Do I actually do NAC or is it, or or am I kidding myself here just because of the level of challenge you've talked about? I wouldn't say it's obvious. It's maybe something that you do when you have the bandwidth to do it or the, the time and, and, and inclination to do it. And with the right products and the right documentation, I think you can pull it off. And even, even you know, I've seen hospitals running on MAB, for example, quite happily. And some security people might look at that and go, well, that's not secure. Yeah, but it's helping the hospital and it's saving the hospital a lot of money and operational costs because they don't have to sort of create snowflake port configurations. They can go along and and take one machine, put it in the elevator, take it to the to the next floor, plug it in, and it, and it just works. Everyone is happy, uh, but it may not have achieved the security goal that you wanted. So it, it depends what you're trying to achieve. If it's if it's security that you want to achieve as your primary goal, you're probably going to put in a lot more effort. But if it's convenience, plug and play, etc. I think NAC is pretty easily achievable, definitely. Well, Arnie, this you raised your hand to do this show, and this has been fantastic. You shared a lot of knowledge, and if you're listening, there's a lot of things in the notes that, just for sake of time, we had to kind of skip through or not even get to talk about at all. Uh, Arnie, if people have more questions about NAC, if maybe they want to read some of the things you've you've written, tell them how they can follow you. Is it Twitter, your blog, anything you wish to share? I can be found on the Cisco community uh, page so community.cisco.com i don't have a twitter account i did have but i just can't keep up and um i might be taking part in the um slack in your 
Packet Pusher Slack group mm-hmm. a little bit more. Uh, I've not been that active, but maybe people can reach out that way. I have a LinkedIn profile, but I don't tend to just connect with um, everyone. <laughs> but you can maybe just um, look me up on LinkedIn. But I think generally it's the Cisco community and maybe the Aruba Airheads as well. I sort of occasionally pop up on there as well. And Arnie's name is A-R-N-E-B-I-E-R, Arnie Beer. Uh, Arnie, again, thank you very much for the time you spent today. This has been absolutely fantastic. It's it's late in the day for me. It's early in the morning for Arnie, who uh, has been chatting to me from Brisbane, Australia. And uh, once again, fantastic stuff. If you look in the show notes for this show on packetpushers.net, we'll have a lot of the notes here and a few links for you, different things that you can read, including the Cisco Wired Prescriptive Deployment Guide uh, will all be there for you. Uh, that Slack group that Arnie mentioned, that's free for anybody. If you're an engineer, uh, vendor, I don't care who you work for. If you want to join the Packet Pusher Slack group, you can do that. Packetpushers.net slash Slack. It's a marketing free zone. So we ask that if you do work for a vendor, you're not up there. You're up there to help people, not up there to you know market stuff. Um, but uh, you can join f- from there. Again, Packetpushers.net slash Slack. And if you like these sorts of shows... Uh, man, so much more information for you at packetpushers.net. We've got this is the heavy networking podcast, but we've got IPv6 Buzz, the network break, day two cloud, uh, full stack journey, and more. All of that's for you there at packetpushers.net. Just search for Packet Pushers in your favorite podcatcher or uh, visit the site. Look at the subscribe page for more podcasts and information for you as an engineer for your professional career development. We're on Twitter at Packet Pushers and we're on LinkedIn too, if you like. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.